Welcome to Around the Block at Haas, a Here at Haas podcast focused on all things blockchain around all of Berkeley. We're chatting with Haasies, professors, blockchain, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your executive producer and co-host, Paulina Lee. And I'm your co-host, Paul Brzezik. I'm passionate about blockchain and super excited to introduce those around campus who are innovating in the crypto space. My pleasure today to introduce founder of a hedge fund called Two Grams Capital by the same name, Graham Bode, who's just here finishing up his last class at Haas and soon to graduate. Totally inspirational entrepreneurial journey. Really happy to introduce Graham here. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're excited to have you, excited for you to be a part of our Around the Block at Haas, which is really just an opportunity for me, because Paul's an expert, so for me to learn about blockchain, but also everyone else. You're doing a lot of really cool stuff in the space, but would love to take a step back and have you talk about your journey to Haas and your journey into blockchain. Yeah, awesome. So journey to Haas and journey to blockchain, those are two parallel tracks. I think they were divergent and, and converged just before Haas. But my background is as a civil engineer. I did my undergrad at Purdue University, got my civil engineering education and always understood that that wasn't necessarily the end goal for myself. I enjoy math. I enjoy science. My dad was always like, hey, you're good at these two things. So you should think about engineering and being a dumb high school student. I was like, oh, I don't know better. Let's try engineering. Sure. So I went down that route, not really having my heart in it, but really loving the math and science side coming out of high school went and worked as a civil engineer in an engineering consulting firm in the Midwest, building transmission lines. So high voltage electric power lines. As you drive down the highway and you see those big ugly towers with the lines hanging from them, that's exactly what I was designing. So I spent about five years on the engineering design side and was doing a lot of introspection, thinking about career trajectory, but more so personal satisfaction and trying to find that Thing that really lit the fire within myself and knowing that I went into engineering with the intent of ultimately pivoting into something that was a little more creative. I just took the time to do some deep reflection and, and think about what was next. And I think like a lot of people coming into business school, I didn't necessarily know exactly what that answer was, but I wanted to start opening up some doors and exploring where I might find that opportunity. I ended up applying to Haas. It was actually the only business school I applied to with the intent to really delve deep on the blockchain side. So for the two years prior to ultimately coming to Haas, I had fallen really deep down the, the blockchain rabbit hole. I first heard about it back in 2011. I think like a lot of people, it was a missed opportunity looking back on it because I didn't understand it, wrote it off and didn't do my due diligence. But my brother at the time, and still is a pretty avid gamer, he was very active on some of the, the forums and he started to explain to me what Bitcoin was. And I remember vividly the drive home from my younger brother's cross-country meet. And he was explaining mining. He was explaining what a hash algorithm is. He was explaining how the system works from a technological perspective. And I couldn't, I just couldn't grasp it. So I wrote it off and it just kind of kept coming up through different avenues over the next few years. And I just gained more and more interest in it. I was never super, super deep, but I knew it was there and it was clear that what I had written off deserved a little bit more diligence than I was giving it. So late 2016, my wife and I actually decided that we wanted to do a lot of self-exploration. The corporate world wasn't really all that fulfilling. And so we decided to take a six month break and travel around the world. 
And over that time, we did a lot of really fun stuff. We learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about life, about way people live throughout the world. But I learned a lot about blockchain because my wife ended up breaking her foot in Thailand. Oh, jeez. It's a long story, but we ended up spending, let's see, it was a little over a month in Budapest, Hungary, with a lot of downtime as she was recuperating. And I just fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole then. I did a lot of research as this pump was happening again in the 2016 timeframe. It was just the beginning of the second major cycle for cryptocurrencies. I was deep on some of the back forums, learning about distributed ledger technologies, learning about economics, money, sovereignty, public-private key cryptography, and it just really captured my attention. It started, I could tell it was filling that need of curiosity, but I didn't really know where that fit in with my overall goals. Fast forward, we come back from our around-the-world trip, went back to engineering to the same company that I actually left in a little bit of a different capacity, was working in project management and doing some internal consulting initiatives. But in the back of my mind, I couldn't let this Bitcoin thing go. At that time, it was mainly Bitcoin. Ethereum was kind of on the horizon, fairly unheard of, and certainly had not realized the potential that it has to this day. But I was really deep on Bitcoin. And I knew that given that I was spending about 95% of my time away from work researching blockchain, that I had to find a way to make that part of my overall career trajectory. What do you think hooked you about it? What drew you down the rabbit hole and why couldn't you let it go? I think it's very simple. It's intellectual curiosity. In my opinion, blockchain and more eloquently cryptocurrencies as a system are one of the most elaborate and beautiful systems that I've ever seen that draw in both technology, social influences, politics, economics. And so it's this really comprehensive system that provided just this bed for me to go explore. And that's what was super fulfilling. I'm a naturally very curious person and I love teaching myself and the avenues to learn in this space are so great. And the need to understand such a broad set of skills is so great that this was really just intellectually stimulating because of that opportunity to explore those different areas. And especially back at that time where there was hardly any educational material out there. You had to go digging for this. You had to have a thread that you wanted to pull on and then just go deep and start to explore. And that exploration process is really what was super fulfilling for me. It's what I chase to this day in the space is continuing to be that explorer. I'm not one who gets caught up so much on, can we make life-changing returns? And I know that's what draws people in. What I love more than anything else is getting that satisfaction of feeling like I'm an adventurer and I'm discovering something that is untapped that takes a lot of legwork to get to. So it's that process that I love more than anything else. That's great. Thank you. I know that you're an adventurer and I definitely am interested in hearing the story of your adventure through Haas and when you decided to really take the plunge from full-time employment and really go entrepreneurial. And if you knew that going into Haas or if that's something that you discovered along the way. Yeah, coming into Haas, I had no idea what the output was. Like I mentioned before, it was more of an optionality play. It was opening up a door and seeing what became of that. I knew for certain that coming to Haas wouldn't close any doors. And so I had no idea if I was going to be an entrepreneur, if I was going to find some opportunity in the corporate world that really satisfied that need. I was fairly sure that I wasn't just given my desire to be an explorer, to be an adventurer, it's tough to do that in the corporate world because of the constraints that are put on you. So 
I couldn't have told you for sure it was going to be the entrepreneurial path. But as I reflect on it, there really weren't many other avenues. But ultimately, coming through this process and getting to the point where I knew that the corporate world wasn't providing that sort of flexibility that I wanted made that decision super easy for me. And so it took a lot of time to reflect and say, can I accomplish my personal goals given the situation that I put in right now? Is that possible? And what does that trajectory look like? And after I went through that process, the decision to leave actually was very separate from the decision to pursue entrepreneurial efforts. The decision to leave came well before I knew that I was going to form anything. It was purely a opportunity cost decision. And the cost of staying in an environment where I couldn't do that exploration on a full-time basis was far greater than the cost of not having that income and being able to do that full-time. So I made the personal decision to forego any of the monetary rewards of working and just pursuing this research and fulfilling that need to explore. And I think I was lucky in that I had a lot of financial stability at the time to do so, but that decision was looking back on it, and it still is probably the worst financial decision I could make. However, it was by far the best personal decision I've made in my life. I do the same thing over a hundred times. That's great. Now I would love to dive into more of what you're doing today, but before we get into cryptocurrency, you talked about when you were first introduced to the idea of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, you couldn't quite wrap your head around it. And mm -hmm. that's where I am at. So would love for you to break down the foundations, help me help our listeners understand the transition of blockchain, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency. Yeah, I'll start with this. It's incredibly complicated. I think at first blush, it looks like just a piece of technology. I think I was naive in thinking it was purely a technological innovation. As I mentioned before, I've come to understand this is much more of a systems innovation. And that's what's beautiful about it is it's not just the technology. The technology by itself falls apart. You have to have human actors who are there performing and acting in an economically rational way to make this system robust for it to actually deliver on the promises. So the challenge is that there are so many facets to understand to really wrap your head around this. I use a framework that I actually found back in 2018, I think, from Ari Paul. It's called the Spiral. I think he gave this at a presentation at the University of Chicago, I believe. Don't quote me on exactly where it came from. But essentially what he outlined, and I've used this as my roadmap for understanding, are the different areas of expertise that one has to have. And that starts with computer science. So understanding networks and databases, scalability, security, to cryptography. As I think you've probably heard people talk about cryptography in this space. You've got to understand what a hashing algorithm is, what public-private key cryptography is, why that actually works. One piece that I find the most intellectually stimulating is the game theory side of this. So understanding how economically rational participants are the ones who actually reinforce this system through these game theoretics that were built, that is consensus. If you hear something called consensus mechanisms, the reason miners behave the way they do is because they're acting in their best interest. And this all falls under the subset of game theory to politics. So understanding regulation, how that's coming to the space, how that's going to affect the advancement and the innovation or stifle it in certain geographic areas. Understanding economics, big ones, behavioral economics in this space. So understanding how the human biases push us to do certain things helps one wrap their mind around why the market behaves the way that it does. Understanding micro, understanding macro. There's a lot of talk about the macro environment and inflation hedges and Bitcoin. So understanding that subset also is a prerequisite for really understanding the Bitcoin system, but 
blockchain at large. And then lastly, as I think everybody probably understands, is investing and trading. So understanding portfolio management, risk management, technical analysis, how to do valuations. That's the whole spiral that Ari laid out that I've kind of used as my roadmap for understanding. And it's so broad that it's so challenging to wrap your mind around all of those. But if you've got the curiosity, it's a near endless roadmap. And so part of the reason I wanted to come to Haas was to fill in some of those gaps in those areas. You're a big proponent of frameworks and hedging risk. How about recommendations for hedging risks in this type of crypto winter with Bitcoin and Ethereum prices crashing down 50% in the last few months? Yeah, risk is a great question because this is the most volatile asset class that exists. I'll start off by saying volatility plays in both directions. So I think one, before they get involved in the market, has to understand that the reason why you get such explosive returns to the upside is because there is the possibility for such devastating drawdowns to the downside. I personally can't recommend any specific risk management strategies, but what I can say is what is absolutely necessary for anybody looking to deploy any capital into the space is to fundamentally first ask themselves what the thesis is that they're investing around. I'm a big proponent of thesis-driven investments. And so I think what I've seen all too often, especially from the retail side in this space, is the investment into crypto is viewed as a lottery ticket. Let me put some capital in and I hope this thing goes 100x. And if it doesn't, so be it. Now, the risk is if you've made this a gamble and you haven't properly allocated, you've over-allocated, that can be incredibly devastating. So understanding what the core thesis is for the investment keeps the individual exposed when they should be exposed. It removes a lot of the emotions, which will cause us inevitably to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. And so what I mean by that, I mean, I'll share kind of my fundamental approach. My fundamental approach is one of understanding where there's technical innovation. So what I'm really interested in doing is deploying capital into opportunities that show something that's very unique. And I have a framework that I work through in terms of analyzing why it's unique, why it's sustainable, why this opportunity might be better than other opportunities. But ultimately, that thesis is built around why this is different. And then I come up with an invalidation for that thesis, which are specific criteria before any investments ever made when I'm wrong. And that's the most important thing that I think most people, and it was the toughest for me to understand, the invalidation side. It's when does whatever I expected to play out when is that no longer true? And then when those conditions are met, putting the emotions aside and walking away, that's what helps. And I think the challenge is a lot of people don't think about those things before actually deploying capital. Those are afterthoughts once either the market crashes and they say, oh, what am I supposed to do now? I'm way overexposed. So bringing those to the forefront before the money is deployed will help tremendously. If we want to go into specifics in terms of what a framework might look like around that we can. But I would say the most important thing is that moving the thought process of what is the thesis and where is invalidation up before even thinking about putting a dollar at risk anywhere. So we've talked about risk when it comes to cryptocurrency. Talk to us a little bit more about how does this all work and why does it feel like now that Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrency, even though the value has been plummeting as we just talked about, but why does it feel like it's always just in the news these days? Yeah, that's a great question. Why Bitcoin now, why cryptocurrency now, this all has to do with adoption, in my opinion. I view this like escape velocity. And this is what I was really concerned about back in 2000 and 
17, 2016. These systems fundamentally require a large number of participants for them to reach what I consider this escape velocity, which is where they've gathered enough momentum where they're impossible to stop. There was a question back in 2016 and even 2017 when whether or not we were going to reach that level of momentum that we needed to reach escape velocity. It became clear after the peak in early 2018 or late 2017, depending on, on which asset you were looking at, that that escape velocity had been reached, not from a price perspective, but from an awareness perspective. There were enough people throughout the world who had started to hear about this thing enough times, similar to me, wrote it off the first time. But when you hear about it enough times, you start to question whether or not your initial belief was correct. And then that sparks one to start to go down the rabbit hole. I think that's why we're having this conversation right now, why you, we're having a podcast around blockchain, because enough people have heard about it enough times in the periphery that if they did write it off initially, they're realizing it's now time to do some further exploration. So it's purely about number of eyeballs and ears that have seen and heard this. And I think we're at that point now where everybody that we know about likely has at least heard of it. If they don't understand it, they've heard about it enough to feel like they need to know more. Speaking of needing to learn more, if we don't mind to define a few key terms that we hear often, such as DeFi and also DAO. These two are heard a lot or thrown around a lot. What actually is a DAO? Yeah. Two very different concepts. I guess we'll start with DeFi. And before we do, I'll caveat with the understanding this entire space is exploratory in nature right now. I mean, everything is constantly evolving, which is the stimulating part. There's no lack of new projects or new publications to stay on top of. So these definitions still are very fluid. There is no one definition for DeFi. There is no one definition for DAO. I consider these more concepts that are evolving real time in front of us. So DeFi is decentralized finance. And if we break those two components down, decentralized in this environment means we're working peer to peer where there are no intermediaries. So where I can perform some function between me and another individual without going through any centralized servers, without any trusted third parties in the middle of that transaction. So finance is everything that encapsulates the transfer of value or derivatives of transfer of value. So how one hedges risk, how one offloads risk, how one goes about actually making a transaction of a specific asset. All of that falls in DeFi. So if you merge those two together, and there's a lot of different understandings of what DeFi is. It's fundamentally just the ability to do financial transactions in a peer-to-peer -peer manner without the third party. So what's really interesting to me and where I spend a lot of my time is in decentralized money markets and decentralized exchanges. A decentralized money market is a lending market. So where I have the ability as a lender, say I have capital, to lend it out to a borrower without a bank sitting in the middle of that transaction. Now, if you think about that, that's mind-blowing. We've never been able to do that before. And it unlocks so much opportunity in terms of efficiency for the borrower, efficiency for the lender, the ability of value to be more equitably distributed between those two parties, and those spreads to be closed between the lender and the borrower because you don't have these middlemen who are each taking their cut. That's where I spend a lot of time on the money markets. On the decentralized exchange side, and you'll hear a lot about this too, that's the ability for Graham and Paul to exchange an asset without the ownership of that asset having to pass through anybody else's hands. That sounds simple, but the revolution in decentralized exchanges is in how that's actually accomplished. If you think about like how the New York Stock Exchange works, right? When you want to go buy a share, you purchase a share through your broker. Your broker brokers the exchange between two parties who have custody that actual 
actual stock for you and the counterparty. It goes through a clearinghouse and there's a whole set of processes around that. There's probably four people that touch hands in that process. On a decentralized exchange, the same thing is actually true for centralized cryptocurrency exchanges. Think about Coinbase. And I don't know if you guys have transacted on these or if, if the listeners have experienced most of the entry points for people into crypto are with these centralized exchanges. That's Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini. Those are the major ones in the United States. And what actually happens under the hood is Coinbase, for example, has a wallet that's storing your crypto on your behalf. They are custodying that asset for you. And when you want to exchange that asset with somebody else, they just have an internal ledger that they run and they rectify that transaction on their own books. But the actual asset isn't changing hands in that transaction until you decide you want to withdraw from the exchange and take your own personal custody of it. The difference with DeFi and the difference specifically with decentralized exchanges is that you can make that transaction having custody from the time that you initiate it until the time that you let it go. And there is none of that middleware that sits in there or those intermediaries. And so that opens up a whole lot of new opportunities in terms of making that system work very efficiently. And we spend a lot of our time also providing the capital that makes those wheels turn efficiently. Because it's not as simple as just we're spinning up a decentralized exchange and it working and providing the best transaction cost and transaction settlement price to the two parties. It requires other people to step in and essentially start to arbitrage away those differences. Helpful. So want to turn back to your story a little bit more. You entered into Haas, quit the corporate world and became an entrepreneur, and then you launched the fund. Walk us through what you did your first couple of years on your own and then how the fund came about. Yeah. Let's back up to when I decided to walk away from the corporate yeah. world. I made the personal decision that it was in my best interest, not professionally, but personally to go explore those things that lit that fire within me. I was lucky that I had the financial freedom to do so, to do that exploration. And so when I quit, it was actually in February of 2020. And if you think mm -hmm. back to when that was, that was, it was probably only a few weeks before the actual pandemic lockdown started. I had made that decision, regardless of whatever was going to play out economically, that I wanted to create this sandbox that I could play in. I mean, I was super scared when the markets all crashed in March of 2020, but it didn't deter me from my real mission of doing research and hearkening back to what it was like to be a kid and learn at whatever pace you want to learn, whatever seems interesting at that point in time. And for me, it was all in the blockchain space. And so I took a year and a half of just every day waking up and trying to stay up to pace with what was happening in the space, trying to fill in a lot of the gaps in terms of technological understanding, going a lot deeper on the investing and trading side to build up those skills. But it was really just an opportunity to be a kid in a sandbox every day. And that sandbox was blockchain. That sandbox is cryptocurrency. I was thinking about entrepreneurial efforts. I didn't really have the intent to go start something. It wasn't like that was a big drive for me. I was having a ton of fun and still do just trying to keep pace with the space and play the game of capital allocations with my own capital in the space. But I found somebody else on actually the Haas Slack channel, which is one of the major benefits of the pandemic. It pushed me to have to use some of these digital communications, but he was really interested in crypto. It was clear that he had an understanding of market dynamics of some of the technical sides. And we just kicked off a friendship on Slack 
and built that relationship over nine months or so with no intent to do anything with it. When he finally came out here in person, middle of last year, we kicked it off very well. We got along super well. And I was explaining to him some of the things that I was doing from a strategic standpoint in the DeFi space and some of the strategies that I built that I was deploying and told him the same thing I feel to this day, which is if I can find somebody who can complement my skill set and my desire to continue to be that explorer, to continue to live at that bleeding edge, and somebody else wants to help expand and scale that and provide that same opportunity to outside investors, then I would gladly take that. And he was more than happy to do so. And that was kind of the perfect pairing because my ultimate goal in this space will continue to be living at that bleeding edge, understanding where the innovation is happening, trying to piece together where opportunity lies. And I can't sacrifice that personally, but finding somebody else who will allow me to continue to do that. And we can then open up those opportunities to other people. When I found that right mix, it was a no brainer. And so we decided to form a fund. We're at that point today where we're lucky to say that we can start providing some of the same value to people who don't understand. They might see that these things are happening, but seeing that the opportunity is there and actually exploring it and being able to execute it are two drastically different things. And so I view us as the execution arm for people who realize the value of this space, but don't have the means, the time, or the ability to dive in and actually do it themselves. Great. So what I'd love to do next is understand really just how this all works. So transparently, I have little tiny percentage of Bitcoin and I think I have Ethereum in another wallet. And then in Robinhood, I have the Bitcoin and a little bit of Doge because, you know, I wanted to get in on it. So help us understand how these transactions work, how they're different and what does that really look like? Very complex question. We'll try to, to hit it at a very high level. <laughs> I will start off by saying there couldn't be a starker difference between a transaction that happens what's called on-chain, which is a native blockchain transaction that is a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, and a transaction that happens on an exchange or with some broker intermediary. So your Robinhood account, for example, is not an on-chain transaction. What Robinhood essentially is, is another way for you to speculate on an asset. It just so happens to be that you're speculating on the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever's in your, your account there. Where I spend a lot of my time and why I get so excited about these systems is the reason that they're different. And the reason they're different is because of the way that these peer-to-peer -peer transactions work, because you have the ability to actually send from one individual to another without a Robinhood in the middle. So let's break down what that actually might look like. And let's just choose Bitcoin because it's probably the most well-known or Ethereum is right now is actually a very, very similar system. It won't be in the near future, but it is today. An on-chain transaction means that Paulina has some Bitcoin sitting in a wallet of hers. A wallet is just a, what's called a public key. And the way I like to think about this is a public key is the equivalent of a public mailbox. So you have a mailbox that's sitting up at the shopping center. The address of that mailbox is known to everybody. And if somebody wants to, they can come drop mail in that mailbox. They know the address. The address is the equivalent of your public key. So somebody comes along and they drop mail in the mailbox. It's the equivalent of somebody paying you. You don't have to ask permission to drop mail in the mailbox so long as you know the location or you know the public address. The difference is if you want to remove the mail from that mailbox, you have to have the key, right? That key is the equivalent of what's called a private key in the crypto space. So when you pair up a public key, which is the address of the mailbox with a private key, 
which is the right actual key to that mailbox, you can remove the contents of the mailbox. Say Graham wants to send Paulina one Bitcoin. We'll walk through this transaction. That's a lot of money. A tenth of a Bitcoin. You choose, you <laughs> choose your it. denomination. <laughs> All you have to tell me is what is your public address, mm. right? I take your public address and I submit a transaction to the Bitcoin network. Now, what that means, and we'll break this down at a very high level. If we want to get into any particulars, we can. What that means is I want to prove that the assets that I want to send to you that I own. So I have to sign a transaction with my private key that's paired up with my public key that proves that the assets I'm sending to you are mine to control and mine to move. I send that and I broadcast that to this open network. And what happens is it hits something called a mempool, which is just a waiting pool of transactions that need to be mined and built into the blockchain. Now there's this whole network of what are called miners, which are the validators of this entire system. The miners are the security layer. The miners are what ensure the state of the blockchain. And so the state of the blockchain is really just the current state of a ledger. And it's how many Bitcoin does Paulina have in her wallet at any point in time? How many Bitcoin does Graham have in his wallet? And so my transaction is just attempting to move some from my wallet to yours. So my transaction hits this mempool and this network of miners is looking at this mempool and processing transactions based on the transaction sequence that provides the most economic benefit to them. So for me to push my transaction through, I have to send a little bit of a, an incentive to the miners. It's a fee. And then the miners will take that fee when my fee is providing the most incentive for them to incorporate it. So what happens is a miner sees that transaction and they work through a very complex system to have the right to produce the next block, which is essentially to prove the state of the blockchain at that point in time. When a miner mines my transaction, there's this propagation mechanism where other miners are also looking at what is the state of this chain and did somebody else already get the right to mine and to process this transaction. As other miners see that they lost this bidding in this current round, they start building on top of the transaction that the, the winning miner was able to process. And we can break this down in more detail if, if we need to. But just think of this like it's going to the system of miners. They're picking out transactions. They're validating that I have the assets, assets that your, your address is a real address. And at the end of the day, once the transaction is validated by the miners, that's it. Paulina doesn't need to do anything. Because when you want to retrieve those assets, the state of the blockchain is maintained by this network of miners. So all you have to do is reach back out with your keys and prove that you have access to those assets. So that's the way a transaction works. That's the way that something called proof of work mining works in Bitcoin. Other blockchains use different mechanisms, but the idea is all very similar. Okay. And then I have one question on like history. I feel like four or five, 10 years ago, when the price of Bitcoin seemingly skyrocketed. You heard all these stories of people losing their hard disks, forgetting their passwords, and seemingly having lost millions of dollars. Can you explain that a little bit now that everything it feels like is via wallets or a little bit less locked up? Or is it still as locked up? We've just figured out how to not lose our passwords anymore. Yeah, I love this question because this is one of the costs of a system like this. A decentralized system that has no intermediaries means that the participant has not just the right to retrieve their assets and to transact without any intermediaries, there's also a responsibility that comes with that. And that is there are no intermediaries. 
Meaning, mm-hmm. if Paulina loses that private key, she can't go call up the bank and say, actually, I lost my password. Can you give this to me? So right. you have, as a user, the responsibility to maintain and custody your assets. And that can't be understated how much of a responsibility that is, because I don't think most people, and I certainly, when I first started off, had no clue what that meant because we've never interacted with a system where we don't have some trusted party that sits in the middle that can reverse or recall that has some sort of authority, real authority over those assets. In this space, you as the user are the only thing that matters. And so this is what you saw happen is people didn't understand that responsibility. And so Mm -hmm. they weren't very diligent with their private keys. And they either put their private keys on compromised systems where the system itself could be hacked and therefore somebody could take their private key or they lost them altogether. And when you do either of those, there is no recourse. Whoever has that private key in this world is the owner of that asset. Maybe not from a legal perspective in the real world, but in this world, code is law. And if you can prove that you have that key, you are rightfully entitled to those assets per blockchain rules. The way we've been able to kind of move incrementally beyond that is there's better education. People understand that responsibility, but better yet, people understand when they don't get it. And when you don't understand it, now you have the ability to keep your assets on, say, Coinbase or to allow somebody else to custody them for you. So we're getting this whole other third-party layer of services who are helping abstract that responsibility away. I personally, as a decentralization, self-sovereignty purist, try to keep as far away from custody as I can, because for me, that's what's different about this system is I don't need those parties. But it requires you to change the way you think about custody and change the way you think about what happens in any sort of catastrophic event. If I were to die, how does somebody get access to my assets? So you have Mm -hmm. to re-architect the whole system around that responsibility. And I think people are starting to understand what that means because you're hearing about those instances much less these days. I had a question related to the Bitcoin mempool, as you were mentioning, that's based off of how much incentive there is. So if somebody is just out there buying a cup of coffee for 99 cents with Bitcoin, you would imagine that's a very low fee. Bitcoin's transactions per second are something like seven compared with Visa, which can handle something like 65,000 per second. How long does it take before this transaction actually is recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain? couple pieces there. We can talk specifically about block time on Bitcoin. So the way this works is it's probabilistic. It's not deterministic. So you never know for sure what the processing time is going to be for the next block. But the way the system is architected is that it is probabilistic that each block will be produced in 10 minute intervals. Now, that's all based off of how many miners there are in this system. So the more miners there are, the more what's called hash power there is, or the ability to do these very complex computations that give the miners the right to produce a block. The more hash power there is, then the shorter the block time is going to be. But what Satoshi created is so beautiful because it self-heals. And so when block time falls below a threshold, then the way the algorithm works is it actually increases what's called the difficulty. So it actually makes it more difficult for miners to find and have the right to produce the block. So it adjusts such that that block time is probabilistically 10 minutes. And so you get fluctuations in any short time period on a daily basis or an interblock basis. But over the long run, if you look, block time is almost consistently averaging it at 10 minutes. Now, you talk about how do you buy a cup of coffee on the Bitcoin blockchain? 
I love this question because this is kind of the conversation around Bitcoin that was back in 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. It was this idea of Bitcoin as a payment system. I think we've moved well beyond the idea of Bitcoin as a payment system. And what I believe is this world of a bunch of different use case specific blockchains. And that means that there can be a blockchain to solve one specific need, and it might be horrible at other needs. So what's evolved is this idea of Bitcoin as a payment network to Bitcoin as more of a store of value, a long-term store of value, an incredibly secure, hardened, battle-tested network that sacrifices scalability for decentralization and for security. It is by far the most decentralized and the most secure network. However, it's not scalable. A 10 minute block time isn't gonna do it when you're sitting there waiting for your cup of coffee. What we're seeing though is in this next generation of blockchains is that there are new blockchains that make small sacrifices in terms of security or sacrifice a little bit in terms of decentralization to get more scalability. And that's what you're after. When you're buying a cup of coffee, you want that transaction to be processed nearly instantaneously with next to no fees. So there are definitely blockchains out there that solve for that use case. I would argue that those blockchains are not the same blockchains that I would want to put a hundred million or a billion dollars worth of capital on and feel very confident that a transaction is going to go through and that there is very little probability of any tampering. So it's just a sacrifice in different places. And Bitcoin is no longer, in my mind, viewed as a payment system. I don't think it ever will serve that need. There's some alternative solutions that might do that. But I think that's what's awesome is this evolution of thinking about not just a blockchain, but an ecosystem of blockchains that find their use case. They might not know it when they're created, but ultimately the market sniffs that out. I separate out what I view as an opportunity from a financial perspective and where I think there's opportunity from an innovation perspective. What I've learned is not to second guess what the signals are that the market's giving you. And one of those examples is NFTs. When I first heard about Bitcoin, I don't know it, I don't get it, I write it off. And then you hear about it enough and there's enough interest and you come back to it and say, what did I miss? I did the same thing with NFTs, which was initially, it's like, this is a JPEG. Okay, yes, I get it. There is self-custody. Yeah, we can prove there's provenance efficiencies here. The verifiability is fantastic, but it's still at the end of the day, just a JPEG. I've circled back to it and realized that the market's actually indicating something that I couldn't see initially. And I think this idea of tokenized ownership across a wide array of applications is only going to proliferate at near light speed. And so I don't think that Profile pictures and JPEGs are really the ultimate use case for NFTs. We're seeing lots of people innovating in the NFT front in terms of ticket sales, social tokens. So proving membership into a community for me is that big theme that NFTs unveiled is this idea of monetizing a community and the, the NFT, the picture itself, if you're talking about some of the either artwork or profile pictures was just your representation of being a member of a community. And the way that that community monetizes itself is marketing itself online through Twitter, through all these different avenues. I think that same idea is going to be applied to the creator economy across a lot of different avenues. And so if that's through NFTs, there's other platforms that allow creators to monetize and communities to monetize the value they're creating. That's a paradigm shift. That's really interesting. The gaming side, there's obviously a lot of interest in gaming, a lot of interest in metaverse. I think we've gone through some hype cycles in those where for me, it's getting interesting to pay attention to where there's real innovation happening because it got slammed with a lot of noise and a lot of that froth is starting to dissipate. I don't think that's going anywhere because we're unlocking completely new economic systems in games and in virtual interactions that never existed. But ultimately, from a technological perspective, I still think we have a long way to go at the infrastructure layer. Developing 
use case specific protocols and more so finding that product market fit because there's a lot of protocols out there, but I don't think a lot of them have found their homes in terms of what the ultimate use case is for them. I mean, look how long the Bitcoin example we talked about, look how long it's gotten us to get to this point where the first blockchain we're understanding actually this payment use case doesn't really work. It's taken 12 years. And so I think there's going to be a lot of that product market fit that's happening with these alternative L1s that is still yet to be discovered. That's why I love thinking about the what ifs. What is the use case that this specific blockchain solves for, even if they don't know it and the market doesn't know it. So I think that's what excites me from the technological perspective. I don't like to speculate on price with people because I think it distracts from what's really happening here, which is that we have a paradigm shift in terms of an economic system that's been created. That's very exciting. I feel like I'm already behind on the NFT side since I don't own any, but I do have a lot of friends who have been transacting. <laughs> so we might have to have you come back and talk to us more about NFTs and some of these other trends that we see for the upcoming year. But just wanted to close out and thank you for your time today and for breaking it down for us so simply and providing some frameworks as how to think about blockchain and crypto. Since you are an entrepreneur, I would love to just pause and give you a chance to kind of plug your fund and plug your business for people to find you. Yeah, I'll plug what actually is very interesting to me, which is talking about this. If anybody wants to talk about the technology, to talk about the trends that are happening, feel free to contact me at gbode, G-B-O-D-E, at berkeley.edu. If you're at Haas, hit me up on Slack, find me on LinkedIn. But what's most interesting to me is what we've talked about a lot. It's being an advocate for this, but also exploring. And I'd love to do that exploration with other people that are intellectually curious. Thanks for having me. Hopefully I can come back and talk at some point too. We'd love to have you. Thank you. Thanks guys. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Around the Block at Haas. If you're interested in a specific blockchain topic, please email us at haaspodcasts with an S at berkeley.edu. Until next time, this is Paul. And this is Paulina, and we'll see you around the block. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or any offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to purchase any interest in any investment vehicles and should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of any of the business entities described herein. Such views and opinions do not constitute economic, legal accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. Before making any investment, you should carefully seek independent legal, tax, and regulatory advice, including the advice of a licensed financial advisor regarding the suitability of the investment product, taking into account your specific investment objectives, financial situations, and any particular needs and your ability to assume the risks involved. As they say in crypto, do your own research.